Welcome to the Coming Clean Podcast with your host, Peter O. For over 25 years, entrepreneur, speaker, and CEO Peter O. Estevez has built businesses all over the world, and today he shares his experiences, failures, and successes along the side of some of the most sought-after thought leaders to help you pave your way to success. Please welcome to the show your host, Peter O. Estevez. Hello and welcome to the episode of Coming Clean Podcast. This is your host, Peter O. Estevez. Welcome to the new episode. And this week we have none other than New York Times bestseller, Keith Frosty. Hello, Keith. Welcome to Coming Clean Podcast. This is going to be a lot of fun, Peter. I'm looking forward to it. I am excited to have you. You know, Keith, you have been an incredible author of Never Eat Alone. And of course, who's, who got your back in Leading Without Authority, which is probably one of my favorite titles and also something that I'm very, very, very interested to dive into. Why that title and what does that mean? Look, the reality is I wrote a book uh, many years ago that was a major seller called Never Eat Alone. And it's all about networking and building authentic and generous networks and how authenticity and generosity are actually the primary way in which you build your network, not being a user not being a manipulator. It's not about smarmy people running around hanging out business cards, right? And so what we find though is 20 years later, we wake up today and the way we get shit done is through networks. I coach organizations. I coach executive teams. And if people stayed in their swim lanes and, and led with the authority with which they have, we would never be able to transform companies. The number one thing a leader has to do today is to get their organization to ignore the boundaries of the organization, ignore the org chart, and lead without authority, lead for transformation. All that it takes is somebody that has a vision and a group of folks that will co-create and follow that vision with them. That's leadership today. So leading in networks is actually the format for leadership today. So that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to create the formula for the new form of leadership. Let's dive in a little deeper into that and exactly what that means. You know, we've been thought historically, okay, old school leadership, top down. Top down. So you're talking more of a vertical style of leadership. It's a a big shift. In fact, the first thing we do when we talk to executive teams is we do something we call recontracting. We recontract. And having done a little bit of research about you, I think you know what I'm talking about when I say recontract. We have social contracts and how we work with people. And if somebody goes through the 12 steps, they relearn a new social contract for making amends and going through their life, right? Doing a ruthless moral inventory. There's things that we do that is an old contract and how we used to see the world and and our our values. And there's a new contract. So I have eight critical attributes of high-performing teams that we recontract. And they all come under a word that I use called co-elevation. So teams used to collaborate when needed, but then go back to coexistence. So individuals on teams would do their own stuff, collaborate when needed, and go back to doing your own stuff. But co-elevation is a state of being and a state of mind and a state of teammanship that makes people say, we're going to cross the finish line together. If I'm the head of marketing 
and I'm, I'm hitting on my, all of my uh, KPIs, my leads, or et cetera, but sales isn't closing, then I've got to go back, do what I need to do to bring sales forward. That means reallocating budget, reallocating time. It doesn't matter. It's sort of like the military. Every damn man gets on that helicopter before we take off, right? And that's not the way teams think today. Teams are self-preservatory to themselves. And they're hub and spoke to the leader. The leader's at the center. Accountability is the leader. I want accountability to be to each other. Where do you get your feedback? Not just from the leader. They have to be getting their feedback from each other. If, as leaders in, in these kind of old organizations, we're playing whack-a-mole all over the place, trying to make sure everyone's energy is strong, everyone's direction is there, everyone's et cetera. But imagine if the team took care of each other. And that's the basis of co-elevation. And we're using that right now you know, from, from venture startups that I have in my, in my venture institute to entrepreneurial organizations. But I'm also coaching the turnaround of General Motors with this working with uh, the Mary DeBaris team. I'm working with Verizon. I'm working with Delta Airlines all through the pandemic. We're using co-elevation as a new form of leadership that allows you to get transformative, accelerate your objectives faster. So you're actually working with traditional companies that have had a, a traditional structure of leadership and hierarchy. Now, does this make it a lot easier today, Keith, now that we are, for lack of a better word, working remotely? Is it easier yeah. to be able to implement some of the systems? Is that, has that opened an opportunity to disrupt some of the old management systems? You know, this is a great question. Here's what I'll do for you. I will put, I've just come out with a white paper for Harvard Business Review that hasn't been published yet. And what we've studied, I, I started a research institute a number of years ago, and we go through these periodic uh, major research projects. We're just finishing a research project of what organizations needed to learn coming out of the pandemic so that the pandemic was an inflection point to leap forward in your success as opposed to crawling out of the rubble. And this research project was called Go Forward to Work. And I will put it on, on my website. I'll put this research paper on my website at coelevation com coelevation.com. You can send it out to your, your folks. And there's a couple of things that are there for you. Number one, the eight attributes of a high-performing team. We have a free diagnostic. Feel free to take it. The eight attributes of what is a high-performing team, it'll be on there. So will this white paper, which is what have we learned about the best practices of remote teams that actually make remote teams more effective than physical teams? Now, here's the thing. There's been a lot of studies done recently that said physical teams are more innovative than remote teams. But when I've looked at this and I've looked at the research, it came out of Oxford and came out of Harvard. When I looked at this and looked at the research, what we saw was that they were studying teams that didn't utilize remote tools well. So if you took a physical team and ported it into a remote uh, environment during 2020, but didn't fully utilize the remote tools, then you struggled with innovation. You struggled with the team having connectedness. But if you use the tools right, you actually excelled. So we did a study and showed that teams that use the tools right excelled on their candor and transparency. They, sell, they excelled on their commitment to each other and bonding during the year. They excelled on their ability to collaborate effectively. They excelled on their... Um, let me see what the various attributes are. Their agility as well. So we have those eight, eight attributes if you use the tools right. Now, I'll give you a couple of shortcuts. I mean, I, 
we probably don't want to go too far into this detail, but breakout rooms. When you are having group conversation and you ask a provocative question, you're going to hear crickets. If you have a group conversation and ask the question like, what's not being said in this room that needs to be said? That's like a provocative question. Absolutely. You won't hear anything. You push a button and send everybody to a breakout rooms of three. Have them open a Google Doc and answer the question, what's not being said that should be said? Now you've turned a provocative question where you're hearing crickets into an assignment where people are doing it. Now they have psychological safety. They have more courage in this, in this assignment. And then when you come back into the room, you have a much, much more rich and robust, candid, uh, courageous dialogue. So it's those kind of tools that your people need to be aware of. Now, let me ask you a question. Why is academia so uh, opposed to what, what's going on in, in remote uh, collaborations? This I've been fighting, and I love these guys. I, I know them well. I know a lot of the academics from Harvard. I went there. I studied there. I worked there, actually, afterward. And um, because here's what an academic does. An academic looks at a situation and says, in 2020, did we have more or less innovation in this set of teams? They, they observe. They're observers. They're not activists. They're observers. And they saw that in that year, they saw less innovation. We look at teams and say, how do we make teams more innovative in a remote world? And we make assumptions of new innovative practices that you add, like utilizing the breakout rooms and the Google Docs. Then we insert those practices as interventions into the team, and then we measure the intervention, right? We're activists. We're applied researchers. We're trying to make change happen. Academics just observe shit and report on it. What we do is we're activists trying to change stuff. And so the difference is, and the reason academics aren't opposed, they, if they were, they, you know, they have audited our studies and they've seen we're right, but they were just observing and their, their methodology is passive and observatory. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what do we see the remote working world moving forward? Not that, that, uh, that we're going back to normal, normalcy, for lack of a better word. Well, I hope we're not. And... There's, a, there's four critical attributes of leadership that need to be dialed up in the post-pandemic world. One is I only found 10% of teams and organizations that saw the pandemic coming and were able to use that foresight to their advantage. Most of us got caught on our heels on March 13th in the United sure. States, but others did not. Very few did not, but there were but those who were not caught on their heels had a process of the executive team having foresight, where they were constantly asking what risks and what opportunities are coming down the pike that we need to worry about. Organizations like Lockheed's Space Division, they went fully virtual in February. That wasn't happening in most places, Wow! right? Wow. So foresight is a critical. Agility. We've got, I mean, one of the things that happened last year is everybody started practicing what I call crisis agility. We asked ourselves, Holy cow, what are we going to do this week? What do we need to do? And then we, at the end of the week, we would stop and say, what did we get done? Where are we struggling? What are we doing for next week? And at Delta Airlines, they were doing that every day. When you lose 90% of your revenue, you're doing it every day. So that 
concept of working in sprints and assessing the environment, assessing the market, being customer sensitive, market sensitive. It's called agile. It's working in agile. And most programmers and project managers work in this process called agile, but most companies don't and most executive teams don't. So we were working in agile and I start to see people going back to normal. We want to keep working in agile. We want to keep being constantly vigilant on where the pivots need to be in the marketplace so that we don't miss critical trends. So those are some of the things that I saw were critical. And in the remote world, we can do a lot of these things easier. Now, I do believe that there are some things that are better for physical meetings, right? But the idea of being able to, in a single meeting, like I can take a, I can take a two-hour meeting and I can break it into three different meetings in a virtual world with three different audiences. We could start with a small executive team meeting. We can invite a group of people in for the next hour. And in the third hour, we could do a town hall all on the same subject. And we could have never done that in a physical world. So the agility and the amount of what I call teaming out, the ability to invite more people in, the ability to engage people collaboratively. If you had a room of a thousand people in the in a Vegas ballroom for your annual meeting, that, that was not going to be a very good place to be interactive. Today, maybe they'd be doing polling on some system or something. Today, I, I've been in rooms with 10,000 people where we snap fingers and everybody's in breakout rooms, opening documents, asking the question, what is the greatest risk we see in the next week? Right? Entering them into the document and then assessing them over a 24-hour period and then using that to digest what our plans are going to be for the company. So this kind of interactivity exists in virtual better than it exists anything else. Keith, your book, uh, Leading Without Authority, is based on a anthology of the 12-step program. No, actually, my previous one is. So, okay, so, so I've, written, I've written three books, Never Eat Alone, which right. is about networking. And it's well, about one of my favorite networks. books, by, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. My second book, which not as many people read, uh, even though it hit number one New York Times bestseller, was Who's Got Your Back? Okay. Who's Got Your Back? What I just, when I wrote Never Eat Alone, it was about building a broad, rich network for yourself and how that opens doors and opportunities for you. Every entrepreneur should read that book. Then I went on and said, but there's something more. And this, what happened was I was having a particularly difficult relationship and I was struggling with fidelity. I was struggling with my values. I could tell that my behaviors were wounding my family. I wanted out of the relationship. I wasn't living up to the values that I have as a human. And I wasn't certainly living up to the values that my brand was in the marketplace. This is on a personal basis. Sure. And so I started going to Al-Anon and I have to tell you, it's one of the, and that's where I got introduced briefly to the 12 steps and concurrent to that. I started, I had been curious for quite some time on how very close relationships that hold each other accountable work. And this was, you know, almost 20 years ago. And, and I started observing Weight Watchers and how Weight Watchers had a higher statistical weight loss program because those ladies showing up, getting their way is when would give each other support, but also accountability. Yeah. And when I experienced Al-Anon, it was game changing for me. I started seeing the power of the peer to peer group, right. And the socialization of it, et cetera, around 12 steps. And, and it really struck for me that I needed to write a book and it's called who's got your back. And it really is the power of a small group of people to transform your life. 
if that small group of people has a certain set of agreements or principles. And those agreements or principles are peer-to-peer support. We support and care about each other. Generosity, where we'd be worried about each other and caring about each other. Deep vulnerability, willingness to share, you know, transparently. But then on top of that relationship, butt-kicking accountability and really eviscerating candor. So if you have those attributes, those are the core attributes that I believe of a co-elevating relationship. At the time, I called them lifeline relationships. And so I wrote, who's got your back? And I, everyone sort of called it 12 steps for the rest of us as a formula for having a small group of people that won't let you fail. Now, spin ahead, all of that work now I put into leading without authority as a leadership guide, right? It's, it's as a leadership guide as opposed to just in your personal life. Why are you so passionate about leadership? I know you you were the CMO for Deloitte. What is it? I'm, I'm very interested in human behavior and the whys. The why yeah, thank you for that. That's a great, great question. Look, I grew up in Pittsburgh in the 70s. I was I'm born in 66. I grew up in Pittsburgh in the 70s. And my old man was unemployed for months and months at a time. And the reason for it was poorly run steel industry that didn't have their shit together. Now, back then, we were all good blue collar union people. Back then, we blamed the government for foreign imports. The reality was Japan was doing it better, right? They were higher focus on quality control. They were continuous process improvement, et cetera. Whereas my dad, my old man was an immigrant Italian steel worker. My old man one time said to his foreman, I got some ideas on how to change the way we're doing stuff. And you know what the guy said? He didn't care about the ideas. The guy said, Pete, appreciate it, but I'll tell you something. You need to slow down. Wow. Because you're working faster than the other guys. My dad was just an immigrant, you know. Sure, hungry. You're hungry. Just you bust your ass. You're happy for the job. Sure. He said to my old man, slow down. You're throwing off the piecemeal rate. You're, You're looking, making the other guys and me look bad. So my dad came home, told me about that. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Now, I thought at the time I was going to grow up and I was going to be like Dick Thornburg, who was the governor of Pennsylvania. And I said to myself, I'm going to I'm going to grow up. I'm going to be a politician. I'm going to come and fix this. But that's when I for somehow thought government had a mechanism to fix it. Instead, I went to college and I studied organizational behavior and I realized and I actually became the head of total quality management for a chemical company in back in Pennsylvania, the only person that left Yale and went back into manufacturing. Wow. And I was going to come home and grow up in manufacturing and change manufacturing. That's where the essence of this is. I spent all my life knowing that families' lives are impacted in such a significant way through the workplace. And I used to want to be a preacher when I was a kid. And my old man said, I didn't invest all this money in your education for you to go be a preacher. <laughs> He said, you better, you better be a businessman and make money. And so I ended up, this, I'm now a preacher five days a week. I get to help corporations help their people accelerate human capital. So that's what I do. You know, Keith, you are known in your industry and, and throughout America and, and in the social circles as a connector. You're a great, great person of, of the who and not the how or the what. You're a great connector. You, you, you have some incredible relationships. And you funded a lot of your research based on, on, on human behavior. But there was one particular person that had a tremendous impact in your life, Mrs. Pollock. 
Tell us oh, a little yeah. bit about Mrs. Pollan and what was it that Mrs. Pollan did for you that shifted your mindset as to who you are today? That's a great question. Thank you. It's actually pronounced Poland, like the Poland. country. Okay. Yeah. yeah. When I was just uh, 10, I had to go work. My, my, my dad was unemployed. My mom became a cleaning lady, which she didn't want. And I had a chance if I went up to the Latrobe Country Club, which is the local country club, Arnie Palmer territory, that um, I could make 20 bucks a day too. Now, I didn't get out every day like my mom did you know, to work, but I would, I would, if I got out, I would make that money. And my old man said something to me. He said, Keith, show up at the golf course a half an hour early. I'm like, Pop, there's nobody there. He's like, he repeated again. As soon as my father started repeating himself, I realized that I just had no choice. I called it immigrant Tourette's. He would blurt shit out <laughs> that I didn't understand. But I was like, all right, Pop, I'll show up. So I, I go up there and I'm walking around. I noticed stuff. I noticed where the pins were placed. And, on a, and if I was approaching the green with my golfer on a blind dog leg, I would be able to say, oh, no, the pins at the front of the green or the pins at the back of the green, you need an extra club. I noticed how the greens were cut. I know I, I, I noticed a lot of things. Well, Mrs. Poland had me as a caddy one time. And after the, the, the 18 holes, she said, Keith, are you available tomorrow? I'm like, wow, this is a big deal. Yeah, I'd love to. And then after the second day, she said, Keith, I'd like to sign you up for the next four days. Can I lock you in? Here are my tea times. I'm like, holy cow, I don't even have to show up early. I can just show up. This was a huge deal. I, I was making as much money as my family was making. And um, after about the third day, Mrs. Poland started to be curious about me personally and asking me personal questions. And this isn't like some, you know, Mrs. Robinson story. Right. <laughs> and she was like, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And I'm like, well, you know, I, I didn't want to tell her because remember the backstory a second ago, I wanted to be president of the United States. I wanted to be governor and then president. And I was going to change the world because my dad said immigrants could do anything they want to do. And I believed it. But I also was intimidated by rich people. Their, their kids, my dad had got me into a scholarship into a small private elementary school. And I was with all the rich kids and they just teased me all the time because of the clothes that I had. And it was a difficult upbringing in that regard, although blessed, you know, and I just wanted to keep my head down and I didn't want to really get to know rich people. Well, she pushed me. She's like, damn it, Keith, what do you want to do? And I told her, I said, well, my dad says, if I study hard, work hard, I could be president of the United States someday if I want. And she said, you know, you could, and I'd vote for you. Well, two weeks later, she had the local congressman in her enforcement and a guy named Congressman Murtha. And he took me under his wing. He gave me advice. He told me I should get into speech and debate. He told me that he'd open his library to me if I wanted. That was the ticket. I mean, I ended up winning national speech and debate in high school, which got me my ticket into Yale University. But you hear all that story. And the question is, why did she do it? Well, yeah, I mean, she wants to pay it forward. She saw something in this kid. Listen, I took two to three strokes off of her golf score. Wow. Because I showed up a half an hour early at the golf course. So the lesson to anybody listening is if you care about an individual or you think they're important to your success, you will damn it show up a half of an hour early at the golf course for them, whatever it means. Wow. Leading with that level of generosity is the distinction that we all need to be successful in. Wow. What an incredible story. Keith, what's the difference between relationships of Dan, like Ms. Pollard, and today? You know, we live in a society where we are virtually connected. We used to say there was six degrees of separation. Today, I believe that we walk shoulder to shoulder with people 
we can be in Clubhouse and you can be in the stage or Tony Robbins can be in the stage or Peter Diamandis can be on the stage or any of the great leaders of our generation can be on the stage and we have access to people more than we have ever had. So what yep. is the difference in relationship and in human? Well, I think you just said it. We have ubiquitous access. Anybody can get to know me. I mean, if there's one of your, your listeners out there, viewers, that were really desirous of getting to know Keith Ferrazzi, it's possible. It's possible today. And I mean, with social media, the guy who runs my social media is named Mike. The guy who answers all my emails is named Patty. And, you know, between if you're lobbying to get to know me, you pour it on in one of those two mediums and say, listen, here's what I have for Keith. I have this, this, and this. And you'd say, I don't know if Keith's reading this, but somebody probably is. Here's why I'm worthy of having a conversation with him, right? And I used to have to, I mean, back in the olden days, the research I would have to do to figure out what I, how I would be generous to somebody. I mean, I care deeply about foster care as one of the great causes I have. And I've got two foster boys myself. And one of them, I, I just uh, admitted into uh, rehab, actually. It's another story we can chat about. But, and if anybody wants to support my foundation and the work that I do around foster care, that's a short path to talk to me. You know, I feel very strongly about plant medicine and the psychedelics industry and where that's heading for mental health and mental well-being. I've got an investment fund that I focus on as well as a coaching organization in that area. And again, another short path to having a conversation with me. Let's talk about psychedelics. You know, something that I'm very, very fascinated about. I've had done the ayahuasca experience. You know, I've been in recovery 22 years. To be very honest with you, when I did ayahuasca, there was a lot of research that I had to do because there was always a question of what impact would that have on my sobriety, you know? And little did I know at the time that I don't need alcohol to get drunk. You know, I can get drunk of lying, cheating, deceiving, controlling, manipulating, womanizing, you name it, power, success, greed. I mean, there's a lot of things that I can get, but I didn't have a full understanding of my own behaviors at the times. But let's talk about psychedelics. Just, just as an aside, I just want to understand, in your personal experience, doing ayahuasca did, did not act as a trigger or a threat to your sobriety? When absolutely you not. No, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, it actually helped me tap into areas that I believed that I had been stuck in moving forward with my recovery. Not my sobriety, my recovery. You know, because I, I, I believe that recovery is a transformation of the mind, soul, body, and spirit. You know, uh, sobriety is just stopping the drink, whatever that yeah, drink is. Mean, so, so recovery is is what's driving anybody to be drunk. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's the a lack symptom. of recovery. It's underneath. Yes, it's, it's a symptom. And, so uh, let me tell you what these substances do. Yes. Um, these substances, very simply, I, I'll give you two definitions of them. And one of them I'm going to resolve for your going into and looking at science, but I'll give you my interpretation. The first thing they do from an experience perspective is they literally go in and they pull. Now, by the way, I'm talking, there's different ways of applying this. I'm talking about deep therapeutic journeys sure. where you're going to go deep. You're going to take enough of the substance that it's going to be significantly impactful to you, right? And, and that's what I call a journey. Then there's another thing that's called microdosing. So there's two distinct ways you can apply these substances. We can talk about each independently, yeah. but I would also suggest these are medicines. They're medicines. And you've got to see them as medicines. I mean, I'm, there's plenty of people out there taking Xanax or plenty of people taking antidepressants. We would not say to somebody, you're a drug addict 
well, maybe you can get addicted to Xanax. I'm sure you can. And I don't know if, I don't know enough about all of the various antidepressant drugs, but I assume some people do get addicted to those too. But taking medicine for mental well-being has been something that's been happening for a fairly long time, and it's well-prescribed by the medical community. There are a new set of, of molecules, a new set of medicines coming along that are being recognized as being significantly contributory to mental well-being. And I'll tell you the experience, and, and you can tell me if you experienced it as well, of ayahuasca, which is actually a molecule that's grown from the, the earth in two distinct plants put together, boiled, right? It's just a plant. It's a plant medicine. Right. That's why I call them plant medicines. The other plant medicine is called psilocybin, which is a mushroom that grows. People know them as magic mushrooms, right? But again, they're just, they're a substance, psilocybin, which can be chemically extracted as well. There's now laboratory-grade ayahuasca and laboratory-grade psilocybin that were not grown, but were actually made in the laboratory, similar to a drug would be made by a pharmaceutical company. And in fact, what is coming around to the forefront is pharmaceutical companies in the psychedelics industry are making molecules that will help mental well-being. That's what they're doing. That's what this whole industry is. So what ayahuasca did for me, and you've done it, I've done it, I've done it 16 times in outside of the United States in places where it's it's legal and well-guided. What I did was by doing this, this ingestible, it brought up in one four to six hour setting, all of my insecurities. It took me back and found experiences that I had tamped down. Like we all have trauma in our lives. Some of us have more trauma than others. There's sexual trauma that people have. There's disappointment and insecurities. All of these things are trauma in our lives that have come up. And what I think addiction is to a great extent, and this is not my expertise, but I believe when we tamp those things down and don't deal with them in the open, we, as a result of tamping them down, we create side bypaths, drinking too much to keep it down and forget it. And all of the things that we do around these deep traumas that we have in our souls and our, in our histories. Well, what you do in four to six hours is they, it, it all comes fucking in your face. Right. It brings it right up and you have to deal with it in, and, and, and unfortunately, or fortunately, you, it brings it up. There can be, in some of these instances, not mushrooms as much as, as ayahuasca, there can be purging, which is actually physically throwing up, which is sure. getting, this, sure. getting the emotional outgrowth of all this stuff, getting it out of your body. And the difference between, and I've done therapy and coaching on my life, the difference I have found, and I think all the therapy and coaching I've done is prepared me for this medicine. All the conversations I've had with therapists which I totally intellectually understood. Yes, I treat my relationship this way. I'm insecure this way for the following reasons. I treat my relationships this way for the following reasons. I have an intimacy challenge for the following reasons. I'm an introvert for the following reasons. All of that stuff all of a sudden comes to life in this experience. You relieve yourself of it. You just don't have it as much anymore. You process it in a way you've never processed it before. And it's amazing. I'm not saying it's fully gone, but it is definitely in a four to six hour setting, a short path to relieving yourself of some of these fundamental drivers of the need for recovery. So I just put that out there to you. Um, Absolutely. And if anything, what we do, we discover what the symptom is, right? We know what the root of the problem, where it comes from, and then we can address it accordingly to where this had been hidden in the past. So exactly. let's shift into microdosing and what impact is microdosing doing in the corporate world. It has varying degrees of legality today. 
to be used in the United States and is being it is being validated psilocybin and other forms of microdosing are being validated by the FDA today and are being approved. MDMA is another molecule. It's not grown, it's, it's made, which is being used again as a heart opener and a mechanism to be used in these journeys. I don't know anybody that microdoses MDMA. I don't know about that, but I do know about microdosing of psilocybin and some people are microdosing LSD. Not that it actually, either of them are psychotropic, meaning they give you hallucinatory factors, but in a microdosing way, you wouldn't have any of that. You wouldn't even know that you took it, except you might just feel a little bit more grounded. You might feel a little more focused. You might feel a little less triggered. A conversation that you were about to have that you were fearful might trigger you and erupt temper or conflict avoidance or anger or whatever, your microdosing actually brings you more focused and more clarity to it, but you wouldn't be seeing like spots or anything. That's right. what microdosing is. And there's lots of websites out there that focus on, on this. One of the, uh, for ayahuasca, one of the best organizations I've seen is a group called One, number one heart, one heart. And they take entrepreneurs on journeys, 30, of, 30 people at a time in Costa Rica. And I'm going in late July. Really? Journey. Yeah. I've done ayahuasca with this group a very a number of times with entrepreneurs in Costa Rica and in, in Peru, where it's uh, decriminalized and legal. And on the microdosing, I'll, I'll try to remember the name of the website that talks a lot about that. It's not something that I personally explored as much as I've explored the deep journeys. I certainly understand it a lot, and I'm investing in legal psychedelic drug discovery and what its impact is, and feel very strongly that it's going to be game-changing. It's the number one uh, mechanism today of, of curing PTSD right. for returning right. vets. Uh, Keith, you know, microdosing, uh, my psychedelics have been around forever. Harvard experimented with, uh, with them. They were designed for therapy. Absolutely. Why were they banned, and what's the benefit moving forward? Yeah. Well, I think they were banned for two reasons. And again, I don't know this for sure, but this is my hypothesis. They were banned, number one, because the people who found them originally got on their high horse and got very preachy about them. And not only that, but they also correlated them to a movement back in the 70s around free love and anti-war. So they became very anti-establishment. And, and I think the correlation of these substances, which were designed for therapeutic purposes that are very viable like any other depression drug or any other drug that's that's built for mental well-being, they were intertwined with a political agenda. And they were intertwined with a sociological liberal agenda that had nothing to do with its original intent, but found its way into a society that created an anti-society around it. I think the difference is there's an organization, MAPS, M-A-P-S, sure, run, by, mm-hmm. yeah, run by a friend of mine named Rick Doblin, and I think Rick has just gotten it right. Keep your head down and focus on the value that this is for returning vets and PTSD and, and suicide, threatening suicide patients, et cetera. This has been, you know, and, and significant depression. There's a, another drug called ketamine um, that unfortunately some of these things are also used for party purposes and that gives it a bad name, but there's, there's ketamine therapy clinics in the United States today that are being uh, created in companies like Field Trip and Compass and Atai and others that are really working hard to break through the stigma and make this available. I have to tell you, my life has been changed. I'm a better man 
I am in love in a way that I've never been in love before. I am open to love in a way that I've never been open to love before. I'm a better leader. I'm a better human. Now, I still have a long way to go. My humility has also gone up in terms of where I fall short all the time. And, and, and I just, I'm so happy to have found these medicines in my life. And as a result, I'm very happy to talk about them. You know, I, I met a young man recently, Justin Sue, you might inter- interview. This is a young man who was the CEO of a unicorn startup. And he's an Asian guy who's very, very focused on Asian rights in the United States today. And um, he admitted to his board that he had done a small stint of microdosing several years ago. And they fired him for it. Wow. They fired him for it. You asked me at the beginning, what's the impact of this stuff on business? What I can tell you is I know a lot of executives who are doing this to write their minds rid themselves of narcissism, get rid of uh, abhorrent behaviors that held them back from being better leaders in this world, tempers and anger and triggering behaviors and flandering and all of these things that I know so many leaders have unfortunately succumbed to that they're finding relief in this kind of mental well-being medicine. And this young man, you know, uh, got fired for it. Now, it could be argued that they, the board wanted him fired for other reasons. They used this as an excuse because what he admitted to was illegal. We're still in the early stages. I do think in the next five years, we're going to look back on this and it will be a very different story. I completely agree with you. You know, we we have legalized uh, same-sex marriages. Marijuana is mainstream now. So I'm sure psychedelics is just, is, is right, right around the corner. Now let's talk about- your- By the way, let me just pause for a second. Yes. You know, same-sex marriages still would be seen as having this values orientation to some population in society. I happen to be a gay man. I'm, you know, I have no problem with same-sex marriages, ah. except for the fact that it makes me run the risk of losing 50% of my wealth if I happen to get divorced, which, <laughs> but aside from that, putting that aside, and marijuana is often considered an alcohol type of a um, sure. recreational, sure. recreational, although of course, CBD has amazing medicinal therapies, but I just want to be clear that to your listeners, the work that's being done today in the psychedelics industry is very much focused on mental well-being. It's very well focused on uh, mental wellness. Absolutely. And my statement... I don't think there's a values play in that. My statement to that, Keith, more than anything, was to the fact that we have become more open to the idea of things that we were supposed to, you know, and rightfully so. We should be. We should be. Uh, Keith, you are known as a huge philanthropist. In fact, foster, foster care is one of your dear projects to you, but you also have a big heart for disadvantaged communities. Uh, tell us about that and what projects and why. Well, look, I mean... Compared to the kids in Guatemala that my partner and I have supported in the past, or orphanages in Phuket where prostitutes who contracted AIDS and gave birth to children who then were abandoned because their mothers passed away and they were living on garbage dumps. I mean, this is what we deal with in in our world today in society. How could we possibly turn our back and leave these children alone like that? And so, you know, I grew up poor. I mean, I'm talking about $20,000 $20,000 a year annual income poor, right? I mean, that's not... That's where I come from, Keith. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a you know, first-generation American, one of 13, uh, two-bedroom, one-bath home, frame home. My father was a blue-collar worker. I know it. That's why I care for a lot of the same causes that you care about. That's why I, I'm so passionate about the questions that I ask. So for me, it's just a sense of, of God gave me the blessing, and now it's my turn to, to turn that around and be of service. I also feel to some extent as a gay man, a lot of my friends are doing surrogacy 
and having children through artificial insemination, et cetera. And my partner and I said a number of years ago, why bring a new child into this world when there's so many that needed the love in a family? So that was just our philosophy. And the other thing is, and when we got our kids, I got them at 12 and 17, 12 and 16, they thought that they were in the lowest end of the totem pole. They thought that they had a lot to feel sorry for themselves about. And so I said, listen, you know, we need to go down and let's, let's go be of service. And I learned a lot about this in 12 steps. And Alan, the best thing you can do when you start feeling sorry for yourself is start to be in service. And so going down to Guatemala and going to Antigua and working in orphanages, I found that my kids started to see real joy in the hearts of kids who had much less than them. Right. Yeah. Right. And so I started this foundation called Greenlight Giving. And what we do is we also help entrepreneurs go down to these places with their children and serve in these orphanages. And it's game changing for the kids as well as for the entrepreneurs, but at the same time, we're bringing money down to be of service to, to them. Yeah, no, I, I try my best to stay grounded to my roots and continue to be of service. I don't know, I feel better about myself when I live a life of service. My dad didn't let me be a, a minister, but you know, I just do my best to live up to whatever values and spirituality that I can to be of service. You know, there's something, can I, can I share one of the things my foundation's Absolutely. doing? Absolutely, um, please do. So do you remember a guy, an entrepreneur named Tony Shea? Tony Shea founded a company called Zappos. Oh, yes, of course. Of course. Tony just passed away. He just passed uh, away this yes, past yes, summer. Yes. Very tragically. Yeah, um, absolutely. And Tony was a dear friend of mine and a big influencer on mine. And he and I uh, went to Burning Man together. We did some great things together. And we used to go to the TED conference together. And um, he was an investor with me in a company and just, just an extraordinary influence on me in my life. One of the things I got from Tony all the time was when I would sit down with him, he would blow me away with new ideas relative to human capital. He ran a call center. Sure. Instead of like managing the call times to be shorter, he would sit around and think, how can I make a call on a call center more loyalty generating? And he would celebrate the longer the call went, just totally the opposite of what everybody else was doing. And, and as a result, he created a business that he sold to Amazon very successfully that Jeff Wilkie, who he sold it to as the head of Amazon retail, would say he wanted to see how Tony incubated and innovated human capital that he could take back into Amazon. Wow. So when Tony passed, I, I knew the world was going to miss his innovations. So what I decided to do is start an award called the Tony Shea Award. And if you go to thetonysheaaward.com, it's, it's a slightly... Uh, perverse spelling, H-S-I-E-H is Shea. You can look it up, thetonysheaaward.com. All this information will be available on the show notes. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah, that and coelevation.com. What we're doing is with the Tony Shea Award is if any of you out there think you're doing something innovative with with your people to the point where you're really helping your people elevate in an innovative way, we want you to apply to the award. It doesn't take that long. And then what we're going to be doing at the TED conference this year is announcing the winner but not just the winner. We're going to announce any individuals that we think are worthy of showcasing so that you, then all of us could go to the website, the Tony Shea Award 
Com, we could all go to the website. We could sit down and we could be inspired by these entrepreneurs and these leaders doing extraordinary things, innovating recklessly and, and innovatively on the edge of human capital. And we can learn again, right? We can learn again. And just like we did with Tony. So his legacy will live on once a year at the at this award of learning from people like you out here who are doing in, extraordinarily innovative things. So I please hope that you'll go and you'll apply if you feel yourself humble enough to be willing to share what you're doing with others. Wow, what an incredible cause. How can we support you? How can we support your causes, your philanthropies, your foundations? Yeah, thank you. I'll give you a link. I don't even know what website we have up on all this stuff, but uh, I'll give you a link to Greenlight Giving. You're very kind. I would just say apply to the award for now, yeah? And if you want to make a contribution to Greenlight Giving, we would Absolutely. readily accept it and you know, it's it's just something that I fund myself with a few key people that, you know, with the Tony Shea project, some of his co-founders funded as well. We're going to make this a big deal. And the work that we do in Guatemala, I want to make it more of a big deal. Peter, it would be great. I mean, I know you're you moved out of uh, out of out of L.A., but when you come back, let's get some dinner and talk about what we could do together. Absolutely. I've, I'm actually in L.A. quite often. So I'm, I'm going to look you up and, and let's have dinner. Let's yeah, have I'm in the I'm in the hills right above West Hollywood, the Hollywood Hills. In Santa I, I, I'm, I'm there almost every other week. In fact, I right. was I was uh, looking uh, had requested that your office allow us to to have this in person interview because I always find the podcast interviews to be more connective and more. They, they, they I think we did a pretty good job of it. We have done an incredible job. You have been so transparent. You have been so so kind with your with your openness and, and transparency and, and going into areas of your life that I know you normally don't don't usually go into. And I truly, truly appreciate that. I'll just, I'll just say something at the end. I'm starting to go into more and more of this. You know, I don't normally talk about my sexuality. I hadn't in the past normally talked about my sexuality because I was afraid that it would stand in the way of people accepting the gifts I was giving them in our research, in our intellectual property. You know, my experience with mental well-being associated with plant medicine um, you know, again, I had to always ask myself, even though I'm going to a place where it's legal, is it something where other places it's not legal? Is it something I want to talk about or not? And I just realized that I've, I've got to be authentic to myself. If I'm going to be of service to people, whatever has been of service to me, I've got to be willing to be transparent. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we're entering an era where this kind of transparency and vulnerability and empathy is, is created among people and for people. And that we can be inviting each other into each other's lives in this way. Absolutely. And I believe that we are. But it takes leaders like yourself Keith, to open up. Uh, you know, when we share our stories, yeah. it's not because they're unique. It's because they're the story of many. And we allow people the opportunity to share theirs and to open up about their stories and become part of the collective. Yeah. And I want people to grab this word co-elevation. I think it's a powerful word. And when you go to coelevation.com and you look and you download there's a diagnostic tool. I want you to download it. And I want you to look at those eight questions. Typically, you know, in our organization, there's 22 questions that we work with teams on. Look at that diagnostic. Have your team do it. It's a free diagnostic. And even ask yourself as you're going through the questions, how is your spousal relationship? You know, how courageously candid are you together? How co-elevating are you? And that's the movement I really want to build in this world, which is a movement where we don't tolerate relationships until they get to a threshold of co-elevation. Wow. That's what we all deserve. That's what we all deserve. Ladies and gentlemen, Keith Rossi. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks for joining us today on another episode of the Coming Clean Podcast. Make sure to join Peter and his next guest on a brand new episode as we continue changing and impacting lives across the world. Share this episode with a friend. Follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Go ahead and get it fast. Get it dash in my position. You will never last.